You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, and author of a new book called Auction Ready, How to Buy Property at Auction Even Though You're Scared Shitless. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner and mortgage broker, and together we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp and we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. We have a lot to cover in this episode. We're going to talk about what's useful in property predictions, the rules of the lending game, which so happens to be the title of today's guest's new book, and what happens when you combine an understanding of these two elements with a bit of property now thrown in for good measure. Stuart Weems joins us today, and if you've read our 2020 Fool or Forecaster report, you'll recall that he got a gold star as the only person we could find who correctly called the bottom of the market in December 2018. Stuart is one of very few financial planners who has a really good understanding of property and he's written numerous books about both finance and property. He also hosts a podcast called Investopoly. He's authored a book with the same name and has a particular gift for explaining financial concepts in a way that we can all understand. And we've also interviewed Stuart before back in episode 39. So if you want to hear more from him, please go back and listen to that episode. Welcome, Stuart. Thanks for coming along and great to be talking to you again. Hey guys, and after that uh, introduction, even I'm looking forward to hearing what I'm about to say. So thanks for having me again. <laughs> I know, well, you're our go-to now, Stuart, whenever we want a forecast on the property market. Um, <laughs> Careful. With your recent track record, um, you're the man. So uh, just take us a rewind back to 2018 because there was a big call um, at that stage when, uh, you know, there was potential election next year, there was all the Royal Commission, et cetera. Um, but you were coming out and saying, no, no, I think potentially prices are going to be, you know, if not positive in 2019. So can you take us a bit back to that? And why do you think you were a contrarian when everyone else was saying the other thing? Yeah, sure. Um, well, firstly, I'd say that uh, for any Seinfeld fans out there, that um, George practiced something called showmanship, which means that if he told a really good joke, he would just leave the, the, the room or the meeting or whatever and leave on a high. So... I think probably what I should consider doing is something similar. If I'm one for one in terms of predictions, maybe for the rest of life, not make any more predictions and I'll have a perfect record. But, um, and look, I, there's a, there's a, there's a really deep, and I can't remember the name of the person that did the study, but there's a really deep longitudinal study on predictions. Um, and, uh, and they really, at the end of the day, they decided that it wasn't any better, you know, forecasters weren't any better than sort of being a toss of a coin, a 50, 50 chance. Yeah. And in fact, the, the highest, uh, the higher profile, the predictor, um, uh, the, the less probability, uh, that they were going to, going to be right. Uh, and uh, the, I think the, the study went a, a, a couple of decades, so studied uh, predictions yeah. over a couple of decades. Do you happen to have a link for that? Because that would be great to include in the show notes. Yeah, I will. I'll find it. It's in um, it's Investopoly. I, I made reference to it, so I'll, I'll, I'll search the book and find it. 
Oh, thank you. So, um, uh, so that study shows that look predictions aren't um, aren't that reliable, and and really they're just noise. Um, and yeah. uh, and I, I can evidence that by uh, supporting my own prediction in uh, twenty eighteen because my prediction was premised on the assumption that Labor would win the election uh, mm-hmm. and that there would be a, a period of time, about twelve months, uh, for people to be able to buy property um, yeah. to lock in the negative gearing. Um, and obviously, as we know, what happened is Labor lost somehow lost that election, uh, and uh, and that didn't transpire. But you know, the upside was that uh, negative gearing remained, and CGT uh, didn't change, uh, and the property market uh, duly recovered. So. Uh, I, I would say that um, that prediction was more luck than uh, than skill, to be to be honest. Um, but also, <laughs> but fantastic. also, I think uh, just like in share markets, um, uh, prices drop to some to to an extent at a time when you when you have to form a view, or I think it's reasonable form a view that most of the downside risks are already yeah. priced in. Um, yeah. And uh, and so there's, I think there's a natural flaw in most asset classes, mm-hmm. uh, price flaw that is, uh, and and property had already fallen quite considerably, uh, and yeah. was was showing good intrinsic value at that time, so it was kind of, in my view, it was kind of it's, you can never say never, and um, uh, you know that the property can't crash thirty percent, for example, anything's possible, obviously, but. It was just very unlikely and it was seeming to me like we were close to the floor, that um, yeah. it was representing value and uh, at some point uh, more and more people would um, would build that conclusion. So you think that at some point asset prices, whether that's property shares, whatever it is, at some point um, people start to believe that it's a good time to buy because it's cheaper and that's what makes the floor or is it because it's – hard to find it because liquidity dries up because that's another thing that can create the flaw. I mean, what's some of the elements that create that flaw? Uh, yeah, well, I just think it's intrinsic value at the end of the day. Um, you yeah. know, the, the liquidity uh, is is a is something that will impact markets or have an impact on growth and markets, uh, certainly in the well shorter and medium term at a macroeconomic level, um, but doesn't really, uh, uh, to a wider extent, other people's liquidity don't, don't alter my investment plans. You know, either I've got liquidity I can borrow and I've got um, surplus borrowing capacity or I don't. It's a question of fact, and that will then drive my decisions. Whether Chris or Veronica have um, surplus borrowing capacity don't really don't have any impact on my decisions. Of course, it will have an impact on broader demand and therefore um, price growth in the short term, yeah. 100%. But in terms of my investment decision-making, it doesn't have any impact. So really then it's about um, me forming a view about what the long-term growth prospects of an asset are and the the value that I enter that asset class will have, um, you know, one of the and, and uh, you know I sometimes cite a lot of um, share studies because there's been a lot more um, and yep. there's better data and a lot more studies uh, done on the share market. But um, it stands to reason that a lot of the studies demonstrate that your entry valuation, so your entry point uh, in the investment, is the the biggest indicator of your long-term returns. And that's just common sense. If you buy why assets are cheap, then your upside is um, is considerable. If you're buying at the peak of the market, you know, where assets are very expensive, then there's less upside. And of course, in the long run, you're probably not going to do as well. 
Yeah. Um, and so uh, there, therefore it's about an individual investor forming a view on what the intrinsic value of a particular asset is in a particular location. So a bit of land in Hawthorne, Victoria, or, you know, a, a similar sort of blue chip suburb in any other capital city. Um, you know, what is this land worth and what's really driving the value? And at some point it becomes cheap and that's different for everyone in, in everyone's mind. Uh, but again, if you take that long-term view and uh, try and detach yourself from will prices fall in the next six months, which isn't really a very helpful uh, contemplation, uh, you know, that's that's something to sort of think about. That's interesting because I often, often am asked about timing the property market and I'm sort of going to contradict you in a way because it's like what you're saying is exactly what I agree with, except the way you said it is different. If you say that the studies have shown that the price that you pay effectively or the time at which you buy it is the biggest predictor or the biggest indicator of future upside. Mm. Is that correct? Is that a bit good paraphrase? But the reality is if you buy at the right time of the market, i.e. the bottom of the market and you pay a cheap price, but you buy a shit asset, um, then that's really the predictor is that, actual caliber of the asset that you've decided to buy yep. not the price you paid all the time you bought it yep um, totally. and that yep, and, and i know that you were saying that in there but i'm just clarifying that because a lot of people go oh that's it that's it then i've got to i've got to time it and i've got to get the price right I've got to get a bargain and they take the focus totally off the actual quality of what they're buying and so that's sort of and it's just so important yeah, 100%. And I'm going to contradict myself by uh, totally agreeing with you, to contradict <laughs> myself to, to some extent by totally agreeing with you because I did an analysis, I think, about 18 months ago where I modelled a, a property acquisition and then varied all the assumptions, interest rate and growth rate and whether you bought below intrinsic value and those sorts of things. And also I've done a, another sort of empirical study looking at the peaks and troughs of the property market and just saying if you had a crystal ball and bought at the peak versus bought at the trough, what, what you know, say 20 years ago, what is the impact on returns? And, and both those analysis uh, demonstrate that uh, there's zero impact on returns, right? Because timing actually has zero impact, which is a complete contradiction to what I just said. <laughs> yes. um, and can I, can I ask you to put the link, send us a link for that as well, because yes. I remember reading that and I went, I loved it because it was just such a great demonstration of those, those principles um, at play. So that's quite funny that you say that. <laughs> yes, yeah. So, um, uh uh, so, so there's no there's no um, value in trying to time the market, obviously, and it's the quality of the asset from a property perspective that delivers the value. The difference in the share market is it's the quality of the investment methodology that utilised, and asset selection is less important, um, yeah. and that's why uh, timing or valuation in different sectors, in terms of geographical sectors of the share market, are important, uh, and and that's why it's not important in property because the methodology only just informs the asset selection, but ultimately it's the asset selection that's going to um, deliver value. So I don't care if I go out and buy a property and pay fifty grand more than what it's worth today. Um, I would be uh, not at all concerned about that, uh, uh, either emotionally or financially, if I'm 100% sure that that asset is a perfect asset or as close to a perfect asset as you can get, because I know that's what what's going to deliver value. My commentary previously was re- really just about forming a, an impression of what 
um, uh, what the market is doing and how close to intrinsic or under intrinsic value it is. And, and that tends to be a motivator for some people to invest. So what I'm sort of saying is if prices drop and you know, most economists are predicting prices will drop you know, uh, across the board uh, this calendar year. Uh, so at some point uh, for different people, it's going to represent um, compelling value this year yeah. compared to other people. Mm-hmm. And that's the sort of driver of about where I think there, therefore there's an underpinning level of demand within a market and that's why it doesn't continue to fall. I think the hard part with pricing or coming out with the value of a, an asset is you know, it's very hard to do, you know, in terms of what something actually is worth, especially if you're comparing property to property, you can go and look at recent sales, but, you know, has there actually been any recent sales that are actually the quality of this asset? Maybe not, you know, how far has the market moved, you know, how much, you know, et cetera. Um, and then also like, you know, where are interest rates going to be long-term, you know, an asset might be cheap if rates stay at 2% hmm. for the next, you know, 10, 15 years, but if rates go up then, and so I think it's, it's, um, you know, I don't think people are very good at being able to price something or something actually worth. And a lot of investors will probably think that, you know, it's not worth as much as they've got to pay, unfortunately. Um, and so then they can't, you know, they're always waiting for a bargain, but the bargain never comes for those quality assets. Yeah. The other thing about um, the bottom of the market is sort of a lack of supply, right? So it sort of gets to a point where everyone that's had to sell sells and there's very little stock around. And so the sheer fact you've got not enough supply means that prices have only got one way to go. Yeah, that's right. And I think there's also buying signals as well. I mean, if I think back in uh, in my per- personal experience, my wife and I bought a beach house, which obviously isn't a great investment. It's not an investment. No, it was a, a lifestyle <laughs> purchase. But at the time we were contemplating it um, when the property was on the market. It was on the market for a while. Um, it was just very poorly presented and poorly marketed. Anyway, we, we thought it was too expensive. Um, but we end up buying it. We end up buying it for just under 1.9. Uh, the vendors uh, that were selling it obviously had paid 2.47 years earlier. Uh, and in the area for the, the type of property and the location, the view that it had, um, the, the comparable sales were, you know, in the 2 million range. So I yeah. think sometimes, uh, and, and then you go, well, it, you know, the market was only prepared to pay 1.9 and we, it was, happened very quickly it's kind of a first mover advantage so there's a bit more to the story but the point is that sometimes you get this mismatching uh Mm. in the short term and um and you've just got to be looking for it if you're not looking for it you'll never see it um and uh and that's what i'm talking about intrinsic value so the question then when when we were contemplating that purchase is what's the propensity of that property to be worth let's say four million in 10 to 15 years time uh, and if you look at the growth in the area over the long period of time, of course, uh, I, I'm not um, suggesting people go and invest in uh, beachside locations. It was a pure lifestyle um, purchase. But if you do look at the growth, um, I'm not saying there's a guarantee it's going to be worth $4 million, uh, in, in 10 to 15 years, but there's a, there's a good chance that there's evidence that supports uh, that's a reasonable conclusion. Uh, so, so therefore, that's the key thing I think when looking at property. It's not necessarily only just about what is it worth today, but what yeah. are the fundamentals of the asset that could drive its value in ten or fifteen years' time, and can that price double? Does it have those fundamentals? Uh, and if you, um, if you could, you know, if I could say to you, guarantee that assets can be worth four million in fifteen years' time, well, you wouldn't pay one nine. Maybe you'd pay two, or maybe you'd pay two point one. 
because that's ultimately what you're really investing for is the, its future value. It's funny you say that in terms of could it be worth $4 million, but also, you know, a lot of investors haven't even thought about that, but haven't even thought about, you know, if it could go sideways or it could go down, you know, what what's – I think a lot of apartment investors, you know, don't really – potentially understand that you know an apartment might be worth a million dollars but if apartment prices you know if it's a newer apartment go up to 1.2 million that means developers are going to make more money uh and then they're going to build more and so you know i think a lot of people would you know don't understand that as prices rise sometimes you can actually just build more of them um Mm. and um but where's your beach house there i think you know a lot of people would say you've obviously mentioned there's what one word you basically said i had a view right and so Mm. i'm guessing it's either right on the water or mm. it's maybe straight back. Yep. Um, and so even in beach locations, there's scarcity and there's growth, but it's only where there is actually scarcity. It's not, if you were looking at the growth rate, maybe a kilometre away from the beach, oh, yeah. um, there's probably no growth at all, right? So yep. it's only those scarce assets that um, drive the value. Yeah, if you're going to do anything, uh, do it well. And, and it's the same with property investment. You know, if you're going to invest in property, don't muck around. Uh, don't don't try and minimise the amount that you're going to invest uh, just because you think you're managing your risk. You almost got to swing for the fences and yeah. do it properly and better off putting all your eggs in one basket if that basket is the highest quality basket you can find as mm. opposed to spreading your eggs uh, amongst several different average quality baskets. That's just not a good strategy. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because a lot about property investing or successful property investing is really about um, defying those commonly held beliefs. And one of those is that you've got to diversify. Mm. And another one is that you, the risk is in the borrowing um, rather than the asset. And so what you've alluded to there is that if you sort of, you try to think, oh, I want to stay safe. I want to chase affordable locations, for instance, that I hear a lot of people talking about, because I don't want to really borrow more than say half a million dollars for an investment. It is a lot of money. Um, but that means you're going to be buying a B grade asset in a B grade location. And you might go sideways, as Chris has mentioned, or you might even go backwards. Um, your risk is enormous, but it doesn't feel as risky because you haven't borrowed as much money. Mm. And and this is a, a real challenge for so many property investors to wrap their head around the idea that, that diversification in property, if you can only afford one asset, one good asset, is actually a really, really poor investment decision. Yeah, the best way to manage risk is to level up on quality. And, and that would be true for any investment uh, uh, investment class, including property, but probably even more so with property because asset selection, as I've said, is, is the actual key to getting it right. The actual specific asset you buy will determine your outcomes. So uh, leveling up on quality is really the best way to reduce your investment risk. Even uh, perversely, that means going and borrowing more money uh, but ultimately, uh, you know, we need to service the debt fair enough and we need to um, borrow safely and do all those sorts of things. So I'm not suggesting people go in gear to their eyeballs. Um, uh, but if I had, let's say I've got $3 million of debt today, that seems like a lot in most people's language and it is a lot of money, right? But then if I say, well, the assets securing that $3 million are, are worth $9 million, suddenly you feel a lot more comfortable with it. So therefore, the best way to make your debt look immaterial is to invest in assets with high amount of capital growth because over time then your investment debt will become – it's it's not an issue. It's not a big deal. You know, borrowing $100,000 in the mid-80s was a lot of money. 
just like three million is today. It's not commensurate, but it was still a lot of money. Uh, so if you had to put that into a property in the mid eighties, your property would be worth somewhere one three, one four, um, and you've got a hundred thousand dollar loan against that asset. You're not really worried about debt. I mean, that's very similar around the interest only sort of conversation. I think we should, you know, one of the reasons to get you on is to talk about your new book. And, um, you know, this is one of the conversations I have with clients is that, you know, they'll ask around uh, interest only loans and they'll say, well, I'm never going to pay the loan off. And I say, well, well, first it's an investment. So that's that's good for tax reasons not to be paying it off. But secondly, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in 30 years time, you know, you're in your 30s now, um, you know, a million dollars isn't going to be a million dollars. So, you know, worst case, you can sell the property, but it's not going to be that burden around your neck that like say a million dollars is today. Mm. That's it. Inflation eats away at the loan principle really is is what you're saying, Chris, because obviously inflation is a component of interest rates. When, in, when inflation is high, interest rates are high and the reverse is true as we see today. So really you're notionally paying your inflationary cost every year is you're paying the interest in respect to the loan. So, um, and then over time, obviously that inflation uh, eats away at it. Look, I still think people need to have some sort of idea or plan on how they're going to manage their interest rate exposure. But if I go back to my previous example about buying in the mid eighties, if you've got a hundred thousand dollar loan today, secured by a $1.3 million property, you're not sensitive to interest rates, you know, so that, that debt, even though it's been interest only for 30 or 40 years, um, still, still not worrying you. It's quite relevant to, you know, the coronavirus impact as well on the property market because a lot of people are saying, oh, that's it, this, you know, six months time, there's going to be this avalanche of of property desperate sellers. And I keep saying, yeah, but not everyone's situation is the same. And there's a good example. If someone bought their property back in 1980s, you know, and they've got bugger all debt on it, then it's not going to, it's completely immaterial um, whether prices go up or down or they've lost their job even, um, you know, and, and that's, that's, a good example, I guess, of, of why we've got to think in bigger ways or bigger terms. Yeah, and I wrote a piece for The Australian on the weekend uh, about that. You know, you can – there's practical consequences with selling property. I mean, uh, the practical consequences, obviously, in terms of the the cost and hassle and time of doing it, um, as opposed to shares where I can wake up yeah. um, tomorrow morning and decide I don't want to own CBA shares, for example, and dump them – you know, within half an hour, I've sold them. Uh, for example, uh, it's whereas, in consideration of selling your home too, if that property happens to be what you're living in, it, that's what, exactly where I was going. We all need somewhere to live, and um, uh, and you know, we, we can't just wake up tomorrow and go, oh, let's see, I want to be a property owner. I'll sell my property. That you've got a practical consequence of you know where you're going to live. So mm. I think people then tend to, uh, and there's also emotional attachment to people's homes. So I think people tend to. Um, uh, trying to do everything possible to avoid needing to sell their asset, where that's not always true in other asset classes. And the CGT comes into it a lot, right? So, um, you know, we all hate paying tax. um, And so, you know, a lot of people, even if they're bought, you know, average to assets and they've performed and they've grown over, you know, 10, 20 years and they haven't grown as strongly as other assets, there's still a growing CGT bill that they know and they, they don't even know how much it is. They think it's a lot more than it probably is a lot of the time. Um, and they'll just do everything they can not to to sell it because they know they've got to pay some type of tax. Um, and so I, I find a lot of with property people hold on to assets just because, you know, even in downturns because they just don't want to pay any CGT. Yep. 
Yep, yep. Which is pretty silly, really, when you think about it. We've we've got to fall in love with the after tax return. Uh, yep. So CGT is a component of that. Now, hopefully, we go and buy property with with an intent to hold it for long term and probably never sell it. Um, and that's a yep. good time horizon to to make that investment decision. But from a practical perspective, we can't take it with us. So we're going to have to do something with that money at some point, or, or allow someone to benefit from that wealth, uh, mm. whether it be it ourselves in retirement or or our children or family or charities or whatever that might be. Uh, and uh, capital gains tax comes in as a, as a consideration there, which was in that analysis I did 18 months ago, uh, asset selection was number one. Uh, CGT was uh, number two in terms of the impact on after-tax returns, which isn't probably a surprise, um, but it just means that people need to think about ownership structures when um, building a, a property portfolio, knowing that, or at least giving them the flexibility to be able to sell an asset um, tax effectively at some point, maybe not the whole portfolio, but at least at one or two assets. Yeah. So what you're saying is understanding the ones that you most likely are going to sell um, and making sure they're in the right type of structures to allow that to be efficient. Yeah, spot on. Um, you know, putting it in, say, the higher income earner or trust or whatever, a company, et cetera, um, just being aware of that tax that you're going to have to pay at some point. Yeah, giving yourself the flexibility. So, you know, if you need to liquidate some assets, at least you can do it and and minimise the tax associated with it as opposed to, you know, uh, taking a a very staunch long-term view that nothing's ever going to change and you're never, ever going to sell. Uh, That's not necessarily a bad view to adopt, um, but from a practical sense, you know, we just can't predict the future. So we've got to almost prepare for the worst and hope for the best. And sometimes it is actually the best advice to sell quality assets, um, you know, by restructuring a portfolio. And, um, you know, let's say someone's got a lot of home debt, um, mm. a lot of equity in a really good investment property. Um, and, uh, you know, and so a good time to sell that property because the market and that asset and that selection is doing really well. Um, and yes, you've got to pay a CGT, but the benefits of that is much lower home debt, uh, much freer cash flow, able to reborrow and buy another property. Um, and so some people just you know assume that you should never sell, but actually sometimes it actually makes sense to you know sell, buy again, um, to recycle debt. Yep, spot on. So you've said um, in, in one of your titles of your book is uh, what's more important to understand. Um, with property investment, what's the key to the property investment game? Is it, you know, understanding what's a good property or is it understanding lending and what you can and can't do? So I think it's the management of scarce resources and most people think that's property um, because by definition, you know, an investment grade property is a scarce asset and that's true, right, from a property perspective, maybe of all the investable properties in Australia, probably maybe 5% are only investable and the rest are uh, in sort of investment grade assets. So that's true from a scarcity point of view. But if I had an unlimited borrowing capacity um, over the next 10 years, I'm pretty sure I could acquire quite a number of investment grade properties. I don't think the supply, I mean, it would slow me down in some markets uh, in terms of maybe I'd only make two acquisitions a year. And in some other markets, there might be 20 or 30 acquisitions I could make in a year. Um, yeah. But the supply of investment grade property uh, isn't really the thing that's going to impact my ability to build wealth. It's really yeah. the supply of funding uh, to do that. And really borrowing capacity is the scarce resource that as an investor, I should be managing um, more proactively 
like an asset rather than looking at it as a liability. And that's kind of why I wrote the book, because I think if someone can um, proactively manage their borrowing capacity, uh, so that is in terms of reducing its cost, uh, maximizing your actual borrowing capacity in a safe and prudent way, uh, then that will deliver more funds that I could then contribute towards investments. Uh, and ultimately then, uh, if I do that correctly, because obviously that's a pretty, um, that's a that's a, a critical step is investing obviously in the right assets as we've spoken about. But if I can do that prudently, then I'm going to be more successful than someone that doesn't do that. And, um, and so I sort of akin to playing Monopoly or any other sort of board game, you need to sort of learn the rules of the game firstly to, to, and then you have to, um, learn how to play those rules to your advantage and you build a a strategy within the, the confounds of those rules. And that's why I wrote the, the book rules, the lending game, um, so that firstly we can learn the rules and then secondly, learn how we apply them. You know, you've got to know when to negotiate with your lender, when to walk away, when no is really a no and there's nothing you can do about it. But when a no is just not that lender and I need to go and uh, find another solution, but mm. ultimately you're playing the game for yourself. Uh, and that's, uh, and the goal is to maximize your borrowing capacity in the safest way possible. And not just now, longer term. I think um, I uh, when I started breaking was say two thousand fourteen. I know you've been doing it a lot longer, maybe two thousand or something, Stuart. But um, you know, I think um, you could borrow potentially up to ten times salary. Um, you know, pretty easily if you were looking to invest in terms of the way that a calculator works. But you know, during the Royal Commission and a lot of APRA changes, you know, that's pretty much dropped to six times salary now. So you know, I guess it's you know, your ability to kind of leverage your income has, you know, dropped, say, 40% there, if not more. Um, and so I guess pe- but people don't really understand that it's now actually limiting them, um, you know, rather than just being able to borrow as much and much as they want. Yeah, and, and I dedicated a large portion of a chapter just to get becoming borrower ready and what you need to do. You know, I started in 02, uh, mortgage broking. And at that time, it was literally, uh, here's my client. Uh, how much will you lend them? Oh my God, that's ridiculous. We're never going to borrow that amount. This is how much we want. Um, <laughs> all right, there's the money. Oh, by the way, after settlement, can you give us a, a loan application form and uh, we better ask for a payslip. You know, it was that lax. It was just ridiculous. Uh, literally, uh, we would be setting up loans and then provide the application form after the fact. That explains why it was so easy for me to sell houses back in 2002 then. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And so, of course, things had to change. That was ridiculous. Um, and it was just open to um, people misusing it, which is exactly what happened. Um, uh, but these days, it's not the case. So, um, in the past, so I've been doing this 18 years, probably for the first 15 years, um, you would uh, not even consider what the banks would lend a client. It would always be, what do you think is the safe amount for the client to borrow? Um, These days, you now need to consider both questions. What is the safe amount to borrow and what will the banks lend them? And sometimes, I mean, always in the past, that the amounts the banks will lend them was always greater than what they should borrow. Um, These days, that's not the case. Sometimes we've got clients today that that I feel very comfortable they could borrow X, 
but the banks won't lend them X because they're not fitting inside the box. Um, yeah. And so then you need to use those rules to your advantage to work out how do I fit inside the box? Because ultimately that's going to put a, that's going to make or break your investment strategy. If you want to invest in property, uh, unless you've got a, a, a big wad of cash at home, you're going to need to borrow. Um, and if you can't do that successfully, then you're not going to invest in property and, and no one wins. So what are the main ways you can, you know, maximize that borrowing capacity and manage that borrowing capacity longer term? So what are the things that you always need to be thinking about in terms of, you know, I guess getting that to be the highest possible? Oh, I think there's probably two key elements. I mean, there's a lot, there's a, there's quite a number that I talk about in the book, but I think the two key elements that jump out in my mind is the first one is um, being proactive. Uh, so uh, I don't really, I mean, I've got no loyalty to lenders. I don't think a lot of people really do have any loyalty to their bank or to their lender. Um, uh, but that's easy to say and not necessarily easy to execute on. Um, so as far as I'm concerned, I've got these um, uh, uh, sort of pieces on a on a board and they're, they're lenders and I'll move them around uh, depending on what's going to suit me and, and deliver the best outcomes for me and my personal wealth perspective. Uh, so if that means swapping lenders every six months, well, that'd be a nightmare, but um, I, I'm happy to do it if there's if there's benefit in it. If that means staying with one lender for 10 years, so be it, that's fine too. Uh, but I'm not I'm not a adverse to, um, to refinancing, restructuring, revaluing, uh, and being really proactive in, um, in dealing with that because different lenders will have different policies and different appetites at different times, as well as markets are different geographically in certain areas, valuers are different. You know, all these things are kind of moving, a bit of a moving feast. Um, and so I'm not suggesting people need to, you know, go and refinance every six months. That, that would be, that, that's probably a sign that you've made the wrong decision in the first place. Um, mm. But also, you know, staying with the same lender for 10 years may or may not be serving you very well. Um, and then the second thing is just cash flow management, which doesn't mean, because um, uh, when you talk about cash flow management, uh, and monitoring spending brings up connotations in most people's mind of stop spending. It doesn't actually mean stop spending, but it's just be really deliberate about your spending. Um, so knowing where your money goes and probably the best evidence that that's not being done very well in the broader market is that when I meet a new prospective client, I'd be very interested in to hear what uh, you think, Chris, and also Veronica about this. But my experience is when I ask a client, how much do you spend on just general living expenses? You know, they know how much the mortgage is and that's easy to ascertain, but just all everything else. Um, uh, 90, 95% of people can't tell me with any co- level of confidence. Uh, and then when they guess, they're, they're materially wrong way off like either and sometimes it's not even not consistently under or overestimating it can be a broad category of under and overestimating but they just don't have a clue about where there's where their money is going uh, and you can't manage what you don't measure so uh, do, do you find the same thing chris when you speak to people about spending oh yeah i mean very very few people track or have any idea i mean i think that's one of the things i love about the the barefoot movement um is it actually kind of empowered people to, to look at their, mm. their money in their bank account and have a structure on how they do that and, um, you know, get rid of credit cards and things like that because, you know, the financial system is perfectly built to make you not understand how your money's going, you know, and especially this 
kind of cashless society that we're in now. So um, I think you've got to kind of win the power back and, and take control and, you know, actually have a system in place to actually track that and, um, you know, and then stay disciplined and actually, and actually, you know, and do it and look at your credit card statements and whatever it is and actually see what you're spending. And I know there's apps to do that, but I think you're 100% right. I think people have got no idea what they're actually spending. Um, and if sometimes, you know, they overestimate um, and you look at it and you go, we're actually spending a lot less than that and, uh, and vice versa. I think that was a real big issue prior to Corona. We would get a lot of applications and mm. um, we would have to potentially have, you know, lots of detailed conversations around a client and say, look, I know you're telling me you're spending five grand a month, but, you know, when we look at your credit card statements, you're spending nine. Mm. That's what a bank's going to look at. This is going to be a problem. Um, but, uh, you know, in the current climate, I think a lot of that discretionary uh, spending isn't isn't the case. Yeah, and what I say in the book is that you have um, – so it's a bit of a tilt on barefoot investors' account structure. Um, yeah. That's okay. I'm not against it, but it's not always going to suit people. And, and yeah. so what I find is it's the unconscious expenditure that really eats away at cash flow. Uh, yeah. And that's the sort of stuff that you just go and buy, and they don't have to be big ticket items. You know, It could be you know, I go and buy four coffees a day and I just think, oh, that's only a few dollars. It's not a big deal. And until you really add it up and you work out you're spending $4,000 a year on takeaway coffee, you start to think, oh, hang on, that $4,000 will help me borrow an extra hundred or whatever yeah. it might be, $50,000 that I could um, uh, put towards my investments. And you realize there's an opportunity cost. Uh, so what I try and tell people is have two accounts, a non-discretionary and discretionary all yeah. the non-discretionary expenditure can come out of your sort of main account that receives your salary. You know, those sorts of things are mortgage repayments, um, uh, any sort of utility bills, the sort of stuff that you can't really overspend on. And then everything else that's discretionary, you know, um, coffee, clothes, uh, going out to dinner, uh, comes from a separate account. And if you just transfer, you know, a certain amount, a set amount every fortnight or month, four grand a month goes into this discretionary expenditure at a high level, you then know I'm spending four grand a month. Uh, yeah. And then you know then at the end of the month, if you've got money left in your account, you've done well. And if you've got to top it up during the month, you've done poorly. Uh, and you don't need to then have an app yeah. or monitor every single uh, bit of expense. But just the mere fact of doing that tends to realign the expenditure. And it's not a painful process in that, you know, you don't have to end up denying yourself what you yep. realize is I'm not going to buy that because that's not smart. And you, it's actually kind of empowering. You feel very good about it rather than saying, okay, I'm on this budget now and I, only, I can only spend $20 a week on takeaway coffee. And it feels very strict and stringent and, and um, compliant. It doesn't always, it's not, it's like, ta it's like a diet, you know, <laughs> uh, and, yep. and eating in a certain way. It's, it's okay for a short period of time, but it's not always sustainable. I mean, I use it pretty much it's very similar. I don't really believe in the whole tracking and, you know, going dollar a dollar, et cetera. Mm. I don't think you need to, you know, add all that into your life. I actually think you're right. You split up your spending. You put all your non-discretionary sort of things that you can't really control, your fixed costs, um, things you have to live um, to spend to live basically. You pay them. You know, you've got no choice really. Yes, you can mm. negotiate better deals potentially, but you don't have to be looking at them every month. You just look at them every, you know, year or so. Um, but the one thing you have to kind of control is your non-discretion, like your discretionary things that you're just spending day to day. Um, and so you just pay them out of a new bank account. Just set. You have to break new habits. You can't just do this at your current bank. You've got to, I believe, you've got to go and set up a new bank account somewhere else, um, and then just transfer an amount per week into that account. So if it's a thousand bucks a week, if you want to live off a thousand bucks a week, you or five hundred or two hundred, um, and then you can very easily track and go, wow. 
I'm burning through this fast. Um, and where am I burning it? Well, I'm, you know, I'm going out for dinners or whatever it might be. Um, and, uh, you know, that just, that, that did brings awareness, I think, very fast. Um, does it, how does it make much of a difference to your offset account, though, if you're pulling money out of that account, <laughs> putting it elsewhere? No, because you're keeping that balance really low. And this is the thing, people kind of, you know, to get the interest savings on an offset um, or the benefits of a 55 days on a credit card, people create these kind of complex structures. And mm. the reality is if that offset, if that savings, that spending account has under $5,000 in it, um, the interest on $5,000 over a year is about $150 a year. So saving. So yes, I might be saving $150 at the absolute tops by having that money in an offset account. But the benefit is if I don't go out for dinner once, there's some $150 back, mm. you know? And so I think, um, you know, we, we kind of, the banks love it in the offset because you see 30, 40, 100,000 in your offset and you you feel you're richer than you are, but really you should only be seeing $500 or $1,000 in your account. Mm. Um, and you, you're basing your spending based on that, not what you've got in your offset. And I think it's just that behavioral mindset thing that you've got to trick your mind to go, actually, no, no, I've only got $1,000 this week, mm. um, $30,000 in the offset. And that clarity provides uh, really good data for making uh, investment decisions. So, you know, if I know a client has a really good handle on their cash flow, that they're disciplined, that they spend $4,000 a month and have done that for 10 years and haven't deviated, uh, then I can kind of push the envelope or feel safer pushing the envelope Mm. in terms of borrowing capacity than someone that has virtually no idea. When someone has no idea about uh, their spending, that typically almost always means they're spending too much. Uh, And so therefore you don't really have good data to be able to provide um, uh, definitive advice and, and as a consequence you're likely to be more conservative and say look I'm not really sure about that borrowing level because we just don't have enough data to be able to make that decision so that that's why it helps um, you maximize your borrowing capacity because it then gives you a, a really firm idea of what your future cash flow looks like and, and therefore how far can you push it and how many how much buffers do you need and, and those sorts of things to kind of accommodate that. So I just want to be devil's advocate just for a minute because whilst what you're saying is absolutely sensible and smart, um, it also, there's been, you know, a whole industry of spruikers that have come about, say, over the last decade and maybe they're not, it's not so lucrative for them in the current lending environment or as it has been since, sort of since 2016, but where this idea about you know, leveraging your capacity, you know, and, and buying something, often a brand new house and land package, mm. getting it revalued as soon as it's complete, borrowing against it again and building this house of cards. So, yeah, I guess one of the things that, that I'm getting at here is that in order to buy an A-grade asset, you need to have a really good income in the first place. Mm. And so therein lies a bit of a problem with this, isn't it? Because a lot of people do look to property to solve their problems in terms of whether they don't have a, a capacity to earn a great income. Um, is there an opportunity that you see for people with lower incomes to actually master this or is it really that they're shut out of A-grade assets? Uh, no, I think people can master it. Uh, at the end of the day, it doesn't really, I've got clients and again, uh, Chris would know this uh, very well. You've got clients that would, um, have incomes of several million dollars and have not very much to show for it. And clients Mm -hmm. on 
um, um, lower, much, 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 much lower incomes that do incredibly well. And it's not how much you earn, it's how much is left over after you stop spending um, uh, or how much you invest before you even start spending. Uh, and that's the that's the key thing. So if you're very good, at, even if you've got a low income, but if you're still very, very good at managing your cash flow and you're minimizing it and you've got, therefore, a greater investable sum, um, th- then you'll you'll be able to do well. Of course, there's going to be a limit. Uh, you know, of course, you know, if you've only got an income of $10,000 a year, you're not going to be able to borrow very much. Property is probably not going to be the strategy for you as a result. Um, but if we're being reasonable about it and just looking at kind of average incomes, uh, it might take a while to get there and it might be a bit of a hard slog, but um, uh, compared to people on much higher incomes, uh, but I still think it's I still think it's possible. Again, it comes down to to cash flow management, and you know I've seen some people build some really uh, amazing levels of income off uh, very conservative amounts of income. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I've seen some clients come in and you're like, "Wow, like, yeah, how did you actually build this on that type of income?" And you're right, it has happened overnight, but it's happened and they've bought really well. Um, that property's done well and then five years later they bought another one and, um, you know, and they've just bought really well and they've actually just, you know, saved and then paid off their loans and then when they had enough capacity they went and bought another one. And um, Yeah, I agree. Sometimes it's, the income is the worst indicator of uh, someone's mm. investment success. Mm. Um, in fact, it actually creates a lot of bad behaviours because they think the money's always going to come. So mm. they don't even prioritise investments in their life. They just think income's going to always be enough and unfortunately – it's never enough because it doesn't always last forever. Um, in terms of interest rates being all-time lows and likely to, you know, you'd have to consider this is only going to um, make interest rates stay lower, this kind of corona um, mm-hmm. situation. How do you think that's changing your investment strategy with clients? And that's, you know, with advice, we're always changing what's best practice and what we would prefer because, Things are always changing. So what's some of the things that you're thinking about um, now that potentially you weren't thinking about, you know, when rates were, say, a little bit higher? Probably the biggest um, change, Chris, is is investing in a family home. Um, You you know, going out um, just notionally, if I had a client that wanted to go and upgrade their family home uh, and they'd need to borrow a million bucks to do that, um, in, you know, maybe if we had this conversation five or 10 years ago, I'd go, wow, that's a, that's a crippling move. You know, yeah, that's sure. a move that, um, that's going to eat up all their surplus cash flow. Um, I'm, it's probably going to put them in a position where I wouldn't be recommending any additional borrowing because they've already got large exposure. Uh, they're not going to have enough cash flow to diversify to invest in other assets or make additional super contributions or it's a single point sensitive strategy that's going to be very, yeah. very expensive from an after tax cost of debt perspective. Um, and, uh, that didn't, that, that in itself doesn't mean, uh, that it, wouldn't be a good strategy. It would depend on the client's position and so forth, but, but it swings it against the strategy more than for it. Whereas if we assume that interest rates are going to be, well, let's say steady for three years uh, and then gradually rise thereafter. So, you know, the next 10 years, they're going to be well, well below their sort of longer, much longer term uh, median or average. Um, uh, then the investing in the family home strategy, um, it starts to actually look quite attractive. So that is that, uh, you know, instead of, you know, if you've got a, an average home in an average area, 
um, you could either do two things. You could go and invest in property, so go and buy a, a pure investment grade property, uh, or yep. you could sell your home and upgrade to a to a really a blue chip, good quality area that's going to provide uh, much better capital growth. Uh, yep. And looking at a sort of from an after tax and a net asset base, that's a pretty uh, compelling strategy if we assume that rates will be. Uh, lower for the next 10 years, which I think is a, a pretty reasonable assumption. And so that's probably the biggest thing is the impact of non-deductible debt on an overall investment strategy is much less than it ever has been. Um, and investing in the family home can kind of tick two boxes sometimes from a lifestyle perspective. It puts them in maybe a better location, better school zone, those sorts of things, uh, yeah. and also helps them build uh, build wealth. And you've got to think about you can't pay, you can't fund retirement from equity in your home. That's a non-cash asset. Uh, of course, you need to, that's only sort of one component in a wider strategy. And whether that means you've got to downsize one day or leverage against that, ultimately leverage against that equity, um, that's that's obviously the missing piece of the puzzle. But from that one specific element, yeah, certainly um, uh, the, the home. Uh, and then the the second thing is that um, the, the opportunity is that rates are really low uh, and will be lower for longer probably. Uh, so the cost to associated with investing in property is you know is it's it's kind of if you look at uh, compare it to history, it's nothing. Like a, you know, investing in a property is really not going to cost you very much uh, cash flow wise. And so I guess the frustrating thing though is that um, is when you've got clients that it's a it's an absolute no brainer for them to be able to borrow to invest, but then you've got to be able to demonstrate to the bank. Uh, so, so really building a strategy around, uh, and it, it's, it sounds like a good plug for the book and it's only accidental in the question, answer the question, but uh, really um, building a strategy around uh, proactively uh, um, managing borrowable equity uh, is, is key as well. Interesting, you know, around the cash flow and investing and it's obviously critical because if you don't have a good cash flow it's going to undo you know all your good asset selection if you can't hold it um but obviously one of the things that's going to be impacted um or has already been impacted by coronavirus on the market is yield and mm. you know you know and everyone who listens to this podcast knows i don't buy for yield however it is an important component of cash flow and now we're looking at sort of A-grade assets in Sydney and probably Melbourne as well, I would hazard. Mm. Um, you know, you're looking sub 2% yield, which is pretty horrible. Mm. You know, I thought it was pretty horrible at 3%. Mm. Um, you know, you, you really do need your capital growth, obviously, if you're going to be – I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't buy those sort of assets with that sort of yield unless you were focused on capital growth. But it's going to impact on people's ability to hold them. And I know the interest rates are lower and the cost of borrowing is lower, but um, because we don't know how long it's going to be the case for. I think there's been – you know, it's been masked. Um, the the volume, I guess, of available property for rent has been masked because of these um, Airbnb as a strategy. And now, and for the foreseeable future, there's a lot more stock available for rent. Mm. Don't mm. quite sure how long that'll last for. Mm. Well, I guess um, low interest rates compensate us a little bit uh, yeah. for that. Um, and really, we're looking at the after-tax cost of that debt. Um, from a cash flow perspective, so certainly uh, yield impacts. Uh, if interest rates to ri- were to rise, that would be a, an issue as well. But I guess that therein lies the opportunity. And the opportunity is that I can invest today, I can benefit probably for the next decade of below average uh, interest rates. 
uh, those low interest rates are probably going to stimulate asset prices. So I'll be able to build, uh, and if I do get the asset section right, I'll be able to build a pretty reasonable amount of equity um, over that period of time. And then if I'm managing my borrowable equity, I can build in some buffers to prepare myself for the ultimate situation of inevitable interest rate rises. Uh, And then if there's further compression on uh, rental yields, uh, then, uh, you know, if in 10 years time, I've got, you know, um, I know my LVR is 50% because of the the uplift in value, uh, and I've built in um, some borrowable equities and buffers uh, into my loans, then I'm less concerned about um, having to weather that storm, you know, that, that is higher interest rates and lower yields. Um, because I've I've seen the benefits of investing in property, I've already been kind of rewarded. Um, mm. But it will be even challenging then in ten years' time, for example. Uh, you know, someone contemplating entry, entering the market at that stage when interest rates are higher and yields uh, potentially even lower or the same today. Uh, that that makes it, uh, I guess, more difficult. Um, but it's not. Uh, if you look at historically what yields have done really since the eighties. Um, it's not something that's really worried the market too much. And as long as we continue to see that uplift in value that's really driven by the laws of demand and supply, and I can't see them change anytime soon, uh, I, I think it, I don't think it's really going to have a, a big impact on the appetite of, for people to invest in quality assets. And I think that's always the caveat, isn't it, of these sort of discussions is it's the quality assets. There's plenty of crap out there to be bought and there'll probably be a lot of that crap that, that hits the market because, um, you know, if people have bought it thinking with this short-term rental strategy and then and the asset itself isn't worth holding or they can't afford to hold it if with, on a lower yield, um, you know, that's the sort of stock that's probably more likely to hit the market. And long-term, I guess that'll, that'll come out of the... Um, you know, the rental market as well, and that will actually help yields rise again. Yeah, well, it's probably going to be underbuilt. I mean, the, the, a lot of the supply issues now with apartments, um, yes, there's Airbnb, and a lot of those Airbnbs coming on the, the market are apartments. Um, there's going to be a massive underbuilding of apartments, right, over the next mm. you know, five to ten years because... We've also got less migrants coming. Yeah, I mean, there's, <laughs> investors aren't going to go anywhere near it because the building issues, um, mm. they're starting to switch on, they're not, not great investments, Um the rental issues now are scaring investors even more to buy them because they're starting mm. to understand the risks with vacancies. And so I think if you own apartments, yes, you're going to potentially, if they're kind of that bog standard apartment, you know, you've got to be a bit concerned about it in the next, you know, five years around rental yields because um, just there's an oversupply and, a you know, potentially not going to get filled with migrants. But, if, for example, that's a house. Um, they're not building any more houses and every year one hits the market you know, if it's in those inner rings, they're getting bought by owner-occupiers, not investors. So rental stock, actual availability of houses for rent are actually going down. And so, um, you know, I think you you shouldn't be worried too concerned about uh, long-term yields on houses or not being able to rent them because there's always going to be a demand. And as prices go higher, there's even more demand for renters because um, people can't afford to buy. I think... um, you said, Stuart, around the home upgrade. I think it's a it's a point that is a really big one. You know, I'm glad you said that because I think that is the real big shift because a lot of, you know, people were thinking, you know, a few years ago is that, well, you know, I need to build wealth for my retirement. The best thing I should do is go and leverage up into some properties or whatever it is. Um, 
But because of low interest rates, potentially their best strategy because of the home growth tax-free mm. is potentially just upgrade um, and to buy. And if if you find that people are doing that, that's A, that's probably going to be uh, the best strategy because you're buying a family sort of suitable asset, let's say, in, in a more potentially better area. Um, and because of low interest rates, they can afford to hold it. Um, and so I think it's something that, you know, is, is kind of reshaping the way that we consider advice. Yeah, and, um, uh, you know, we, we always, when we go and buy a home, we buy it for life, a lot of lifestyle reasons and we and any financial considerations are sort of secondary, um, except for, you know, obviously the baby boomers have, in the main, fallen into a situation where they've accidentally, you know, their home's been accidentally uh, arguably one of their best investments and, and definitely their best investment from an after-tax perspective. Uh, so, you know, if someone walks into our office and says, look, I'm going to retire tomorrow, develop me an yeah. investment strategy, uh, and their net worth is half a million dollars and they need to fund the next 30 years, you know, you're not a magician. That money's not going to go very far. Uh, whereas if their net worth is $10 million, but all that is in a family home asset, well, you've still got plenty of opportunities to to build an investment strategy for them. Uh, it's almost always going to mean downsizing, but at least there's a strategy there. So it's a good plan B, plan C, if nothing else, uh, to um, approach the family home decision with an investment lens. Uh, and you, you're doing yourself, I think, a, a good service. And that by definition, an investment-grade property should have wide appeal. So it's not like, and it's going to be an area that has good amenity as well. So it's not like um, you're going to have to probably make too many lifestyle compromises either. So in a way, you can tick both yeah. those boxes, lifestyle and investment. Yeah, we're just doing one at the moment where a client's in a Leichhardt in a house that um, two young kids, you know, considering option one, um, you know, do they do a reno basically, Um or do they upgrade and reno then do an investment property or, mm. you know, do they upgrade? And, you know, by just looking at the numbers and the situation and what they really want from a lifestyle point of view and et cetera, um, and then the type of asset that that price point shifts them into, um, it's kind of it's, it's an easy discussion really to, mm. to kind of show them that actually that's actually a better decision than potentially overcapitalizing on this property in, say, Leichhardt, which is where it is, um, and potentially not getting something that it's super happy in um, and then potentially going and getting a subpar investment because there's not much mm. borrowing capacity left over. Um, and, you know, and that, that was kind of counterintuitive to what they thought they were going to do. Um, and it's just kind of sometimes people need to be you know, a little bit more open to, you know, potentially things that weren't the conventional strategy five years ago because that probably wouldn't have been a good idea five years ago, but potentially because of low rates it is. Mm. Uh, we, we have that conversation with a lot of clients as well, but, you know, should I stay or should I go? It's, um, you know, and there's there's so many elements involved in that. Sometimes they're really, really, really wedded and tied. Um, we've got deep connections to where they're living and yeah. their decision might be to renovate under those circumstances just because of that, that pull. But yeah. quite often what they don't, but what they fail to really understand, particularly in these inner city areas, is actually the scope to renovate, um, what they actually get, when they spend all that money 
um, sometimes is not what they want, not enough. And also their relationships with their with their neighbours that they always loved <laughs> during that process can sour um, through the actual virtue, by virtue of that process. But also the costs of getting plans approved and going through that whole exercise, and most people underestimate that. You know, basically by the time you've paid architects and, and all the fees and various reports, et cetera, et cetera, you know, you, you can get yourself up to close to $50,000 um, before you've actually even hit a nail into the wall. Um, the reason I laugh there is because <laughs> two clients I'm working on at the moment, one, um, you know, they love the area, they love the view um, and they want to stay in this house but they cannot, they've got a really poor relationship with the neighbour. Um, <laughs> and I've, I kind of, that was just about to go and, you know, probably put a few hundred thousand dollars in this property and over probably capitalise on it and, um, you know, we had a conversation. I said, well, once you've done that, are you still going to want to live there with this neighbour situation? And they kind of realised that they didn't. Um, and so, uh, and the other client is uh, they're just finishing the reno and um, through that process they've realised they don't want to live there because of the backlash and the, the relationship they've created with their neighbours um, through basically getting something through council that they didn't think they could get through council um, and they actually got it through council. So you're right, you've got to really understand that, you know, the impacts on the you know, the, the, the stakeholders around you um, with a renovation because um, they do shift. Unless you've been through it and actually had that happen, you you, it, you don't even think it's possible. I know when I was selling real estate, the amount of times we'd sell property with plans approved purely because the people, the vendors had got to the point where they hated their neighbours through the actual approval process. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just like it was quite common and um, you think, oh, dear. It's not good. And from a fundamental perspective, you know, you're spending more money on the uh, building value and the land value. It doesn't mm. really change. So, of course, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're constructing something that's uh, in keeping with the area that you'll get your money back initially, uh, but over time, you know, that, that part of the asset uh, depreciates, whereas you potentially can move to a different area, someone that's already been through the pain through renovating, uh, and get yourself a higher land value component, then it's probably going to perform much better. It's very true. There are some properties that just don't deserve to be renovated mm. and um, or, the, or you just can't justify it. And, and particularly in inner city areas, you find that because, you know, they are typically on smaller blocks of land. And so, but, you know, and look, you know, building a four bedroom home on, on 150 square metres of land, you can't really do that easily now but it has been done in the past and I, and I remember as a sales agent trying to sell some of these properties with a postage stamp for outdoor space they've got a family size home but somebody's said I don't want to move I want to stay in this area mm. they've massively overcapitalized because they've built mm. the wrong asset that's out of keeping with what you know the rest of the market is after and what what else is available you know for those properties they've ended up devaluing their their property um and then create a real noose around their neck down the track when they did go to sell. So there's there's a lot of considerations when you're looking to renovate, that's for sure. So one of the things you would have said when you're an agent, Veronica, um, is it's always a good time to buy. Now I'm just tongue-in-cheek a little <laughs> uh-huh. bit. But, um, you know, and that's what, you know, most agents will say, but unfortunately mm. you know, they, they'll then say the opposite to their vendors. It's always a, it's a great time to sell because, mm. you know, COVID and it's going to crash 30%. But putting that <laughs> yep. on side to side, one of the connotations with mortgage brokers um, is the same thing. Um, it's always a good time to refinance. Um, you know, you should always get yourself a better deal, etc. And sometimes it's it's not really that different to what it was. It's always, you know, so they'll say it's the best time possible to refinance. Um, 
but it's not really that, you know, it's not really always the case, I don't think, because, mm. you know, your situation might change in the future or lending policy could change better rather than worse. Stuart, do you think at the moment, though, is one of those points in time where you really should be looking to refinance? Um, well, I think uh, I think you're right that it's not necessarily dictated by the market uh, in terms of whether it's a wise thing to do to refinance. It's more dictated by individual circumstances. Um, but there's one massive caveat on that, which is makes it very difficult, um, and that is that uh, you don't always know uh, when it's right for your personal circumstances to refinance. Yeah. Um, uh, I'll share a, a quick story. Uh, I just did a refinance. I moved from Westpac to ANZ uh, that settled about a month ago. I started that process that is started talking to Westpac, uh, I think, uh, around about August, September last year. <laughs> so, you know, six months, seven months ago. Um, and I quickly worked out that Westpac weren't going to do what I wanted them to do. And as a result, um, uh, I was able to pull out a lot more equity than what I could, even if Westpac did say yes, um, at lower interest rates. Now, certainly it took me a, a bit of time and hassle um, switching and making that move. But I also didn't or could never have foreseen, uh, well, I had no, um, I have no particular use for that equity at this stage, uh, but I just knew I wanted to, I, I always kind of followed my own advice naturally, as you'd expect, try and pull out equity and, and um, uh, bring my LVR back up to 80% as, as often as I can. Um, yes. And so I started that process mid last year. Well, I had no idea that coronavirus was going to happen. In fact, I probably, my view back then was that 2020 was probably going to be a really strong property market. Um, and I had no intent of using that equity either. Uh, and But it's just turned out good, really good timing that now I'm in a position where I've got that investable equity and I can um, find an opportunity over the next 12 months where I'm sure there'll be one uh, that I can put that equity to use. Uh, so I always advise the best time to borrow is when you don't need it, when you've got no plans, when yeah. nothing is on the horizon. If you wait until when you actually need the money, it may or may not be the best time to do that. So that's and you're always... also more panicked. So therefore, you know, you make worse decisions as well. Less deliberate. At least you can, at least I could go, well, I don't really care if I have to switch to ANZ and if it takes a few months, I don't really care because I don't need the money. Uh, and that was my view then and, and, it, and it allowed me to sort of take that longer term view. Uh, I guess the only other consideration, the only other sort of caveat on that is comparable sales. So if yep. I go and uh, revalue properties today, it looks the, the the value is probably I'm not going to consider what's happened uh, since the sh the lockdown. But um, in terms of data, they're going to be looking at data from the beginning of this year or, or end of last year, which is probably going to be relatively helpful data. Um, but if I uh, consider refinancing, say in September. Uh, later, you know, later this year in September, then they're going to be looking at data that throughout the lockdown period, which um, it may not be perfectly comparable property because maybe um, yep. it's a lesser grade property that have been selling, but the data is not going to be helpful. Uh, and that's going to um, have a drag on sort of borrowable equity from a, a evaluation perspective. So making sure you monitor what's selling in that particular market, you know, that's comparable uh, to your property assets and therefore having them individually secured means you can be strategic about when you want to revalue. So I, I, I have an interest in property, a natural interest in property, so I like to, to see what's going on. But, but I'll know what sort of comparable sales have occurred in the markets where I own property 
uh, and I'll then know also when's a good time to to go back to the bank, revalue, lock in a higher amount of equity, uh, even if I have no plans to use it. I think you're right. I think that, you know, when you have got, if, if equity is, is the, the goal of refinancing is to pull a bit of equity out, um, then, yeah, you've got to be really strategic around your valuations um, hmm. and when you order. I mean, we're just doing one at the moment and um, it's a really scarce apartment in, in Vaucluse and, um, you know, and I knew that if we did order valuation on at any point in time, it's just going to come in low because hmm. they're not going to value its scarcity that's on the cliff edge, right? And um, so, but it's, you know, we've just waited for two sales, actually just what we got the first sale in the building and then coincidentally there was another sale just you know, um, off market behind the scenes that he didn't even know about. Um, and then we've got these really two good comparables in the building um, and then our valuations come back amazingly. And so you've just got to be a bit strategic there. But I think, um, you know, I think at the moment just with refinancing, I think there's a few things why you really should be thinking about it. Firstly, you just don't know what your income situation is for most Australians that are going to be like mm-hmm. in three to six months' time. Um, so, you know, just having an income today might mean you can and you might not be able to in the future. Um, the second thing is we just don't know what's going to happen with valuations. Now, good properties will probably hold their value because of lower stock, but if you've got different properties in your portfolio, you might find some fire sales. Um, mm-hmm. So you have valuation issues, you know, in the next kind of six months. Um, and the other thing is we just don't know how banks are going to change their credit policy. And, you know, they go through cycles. They go through, let's take on lots of debt. Let's do for expats. Let's do you know, investors, let's do, you know, 10-year interest only. They go through, you know, increasing risk, but they also go through periods where they try to take risk off the table. And, um, you know, I think you would agree, um, Stuart, that what you're saying is that a lot of banks are retreating from Mm. the risk and they're saying, oh, I'm not sure about that income. I'm not sure about those type of assets. Um, um, I'm not sure about expats or bonuses at the moment. Let's kind of take a bit of risk off the table. And so if banks all start to tighten up, um, even if you do want to refinance in six months' time, you might not be able to because they're not going to look at your bonuses favourably um, as they would have six months ago. Exactly right. Yep. And, and if if money's on offer, always take it. Uh, and and if it's not, well, you can always come back in six or twelve months and uh, and try again. So that's why that being strategic and borrowing when you don't need it, rather than waiting to when you do need it, uh, is always a hundred percent always the best strategy. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing a whole lot of money and a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Please, Stuart, can you give us an example of a property dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. I do. And um, it's a bit of a surprising one, uh, actually. I say it's surprising because I, th- I thought the mistake would be painfully obvious, but um, but I guess many mistakes um, aren't necessarily uh, so obvious to most people. But uh, the, the thing that we've been seeing or the question that's been coming up is should we move or we have moved uh, money from our home loan offset to our investment offset because the interest rate is higher. Obviously, um, interest-only oh, yeah. investment loans uh, attract higher interest rate. And so the, the clients were thinking they were doing themselves service by offsetting higher interest rate debt um, rather than lowered interest rate debt without considering the fact that one, you get a tax deduction for, so the after-tax cost of debt is close to half the interest rate, and one, you yep. don't get a tax deduction for, so the after-tax oh. cost of debt is exactly the same as the interest rate. So um, that's been a really, uh, I guess, uh, surprising because we've got 
um, uh, uh, quite a number of questions about it and we've come across it where clients have done it without even asking as well. Uh, so that's my, my Dumbo. <laughs> it's, uh, so I recently got a client uh, who has, uh, it's quite, quite big purchases and things like that, but um, he, uh, you know, wasn't kind of getting advice. He was going directly to CBA private um, and, um, you know, he was kind of directing his own mortgage strategy mm. and um, he basically was making that same mistake. So he was buying a, you know, a home and he thought, well, you know, if I, uh, it's going to be a lower interest rate on my home than it is on my investment property. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll pay off my investment property um, and then use and buy, borrow it, you know, low 2% on the home and mm. just didn't understand the consequences of that decision. And it was, that to me was the reason we actually won them as a client off CBA private was the strategy around actually understanding that actually investment debt's actually cheaper than home loan debt because it's tax deductible mm. and definitely long-term he probably wants to keep that as an investment anyway and so um, the benefits of holding that with investment debt on and so I've seen that mistake as well where people you know they pay off the wrong debt or they offset the wrong debt just because they don't understand the after tax and the real cost mm, or take a long-term view so they think oh well I've got no non-deductible debt today so I may as well just repay investment debt not thinking about what might happen in the future whether it's a holiday home or a home upgrade or a renovation these sorts of things uh, they aren't uncommon uh, events in people's lives uh, and so it's also preparing to some degree for the unknown you know the the unexpected that might occur in the future very good thank you Stuart it's been amazing um, and I believe you've got a uh, offer on your book yeah I do thank you um, uh, so normally we sell on the website for 30 bucks plus postage uh, so for listeners uh, we'll discount that to 25 bucks and I'll pay for the postage uh, so the coupon code is elephant um, and the link to the book will be in the show notes I believe um, so if you just follow that link and put in that code elephant uh, 25 bucks uh, including postage Absolutely. And we can encourage you to read Stuart's book. Also, I encourage you to read Investopoly and uh, check out his podcast because if you do want to, um, you know, and I've read Investopoly twice actually, Stuart. Wow. That's <laughs> I've recommended to a lot of people. Um, just because I think that from investors, uh, you know, my, my background obviously is property and for me to understand better or better understand principles outside property uh, is really important and and I encourage everybody who thinks that they're a property person to also understand those principles. Thank you. It's very kind. We want to make you a better elephant rider and this week's elephant rider training is... Well, I want to have a quick chat about the possibility of New South Wales um, not charging stamp duty anymore on the purchase of, of property. Now, this is, um, look, this episode might or will go to air a couple of weeks or a few weeks after we record this. We're recording this at the beginning of May and there have been uh, a couple of newspaper reports, media reports that uh, New South Wales is considering axing stamp duty on the purchase of property. And so I've been talking to some sales agents and, and they're saying that they've had some people say that they don't want to make an offer on property at the moment because they're waiting to see what happens with stamp duty. Now, I think we need to sort of um, make it clear to people <laughs> that if there's a change to tax, to state government taxes, it's not going to be quick. 
um, and it will get replaced with something else. I mean, stamp duty is a massive uh, earner for the state government. You know, the whole economy relies on stamp duty revenue. And so therefore the government in their their pure generosity and and desire to kickstart the property industry post-COVID isn't going to absolutely ditch their main source of revenue or a massive source of revenue um, without replacing it with something. And I think that also there's a process that is in pl- that, that um, you know, a process that they need to go through in order to change this sort of stuff. It has to A, get through parliament and B, be legislated. Um, so none of this is going to happen overnight. So I just think it's quite interesting, though, that there is um, this immediate, I guess, reaction to a bit of press on this topic. Have you found that, Chris, with your inquiries? Uh, so this is something that's been spoken about for on and off, um, and now that the Treasurer has kind of come out and said that he thinks it's a good idea, um, it's kind of getting a bit more airwaves, but it's such a massive shift. Um, and even if it makes sense, which a lot of people think it does, um, like you say, how long is it going to take? This could be three years. It could be six years. Um, we just don't know. The reality is as well, um, you might actually find that that's actually more expensive than actually uh, paying stamp duty. Um well, it because does, what you're talking about there is what they replace it with and there's there's talk of a broad-based land tax, right? Is that what you're referring to there? A hundred percent. And it's got to be going to be, have to be quite high because um, the amount of income that the government's going to lose by switching off, they're going to have to recoup that and they can't just go, well, it's only going to be, you know, one or two percent because, um, yeah, it's just it just has to be a, a, a big tax, I guess. Uh, and so... I, I think if you're delaying your property decisions to wait to what happens there, there's going to be an opportunity on the other cost if potentially your prices rise. Now, it might not be the case at the moment, but you kind of just can't be saying, well, I'm just going to wait to see what happens there. If anything, though, it could actually create more demand for the property market because what it would do is create, allow people who haven't got the deposit to cover the bank deposit, which is, say, 10% or 20%, um, however where you want to look at it, but also the 5% for stamp duty. So it is potentially going to give first-home buyers a lot more hope um, and also investors. Um, And so moving to this model, people can afford an extra outlay per month or per year, but they might not be able to afford this big one-off hit. So I do think um, you wouldn't really want to wait for a change like this because once that does happen, you're going to have more competition. So... um, yeah, it's kind of counterintuitive anyway, I think. Yeah, and the, and the flip side too, I mean, yes, potentially you're lowering the barrier to entry by by taking yeah. away stamp duty and so therefore more people can participate. The other side of that is if they do replace it with a broad-based land tax, which, you know, that's uh, we've discussed that in our first interview with Brendan Coates, um, you know, in terms of the, sort, the different types of models that could be proposed or considered by government, um, yeah. a broad-based based land tax means that every property owner would be paying land tax every year. So it's additional rates. So you pay land tax effectively to your council, you know, in terms of rates, and this will be uh, a land tax to your state government in terms of different type of late rates, if you like. Um, But you'll be paying that for the length of time that you own that property, okay? So in a transitional period in some countries uh, that have gone from one type of tax to another, you know, sometimes I think Brendan gave us examples and I can't remember what country it was where it was offered to purchasers during that period of time to choose. Do you want to pay land tax or stamp duty the old way um, or do you want to switch it, not pay stamp duty and take on this uh, long-term land tax liability 
And I think for people who want to get into the market and don't want to save up the stamp duty, they might choose the latter. And then you've got to think how long you're going to own the property for, because sometimes you you might, if you're offered that choice, that is, if you're going to own it for a long, long, long time, then ultimately long-term you're going to be paying more in, in uh, land tax than you are in stamp duty. So there's all these sort of questions that will have to be posed in terms of the um, unfairness on all the people that have already purchased property and paid stamp duty. Why should they be burdened with the land tax um, burden that they didn't weren't aware of when they bought that property and they paid their dues in terms of paying stamp duty. So there's just so many aspects to this that have to be considered and legislated for and also got through Parliament. So like you said, so there's lots of reasons why holding off your decisions now, thinking that the the state government is going to take away land tax, uh, sorry, stamp duty, God, I'm getting confused myself here, um, may not be beneficial for property buyers. And behind the scenes, there's lots of, uh, you know, key stakeholders in the property market that will have a lot to say. And, um, you know, the banks might like it. You know, so they might be for it. You know, they might not be for it um, because, it, you know, they look at their loan book, it might create additional risks. Um, what it potentially would do, though, is it would probably create more transactions. And that's what the argument is here is that it allows people to transact. You can downsize um, because you haven't got this big um, stamp duty bill um, and you can just pay and you'd have to, you know, lose a lot of your money to stamp duty with transactions. It would create flippers. You know, if you were going to mm. flip a property, um, you know, instead of factoring into your costs, a 5% for stamp duty, well, that might only be 0.25 or whatever it is, you know. Um, so, you know, flippers will do it. Um, the problem is I find though with, with transactions though is a lot of the time if you create transactions, you increase debt because um, through that transaction people go back to the bank and then they borrow more. Um, and so what you will do is not only increase um, kind of more people going out and buying, but they can potentially borrow more money because that's why they're back into the market. And, and so unfortunately that will create price rises. So first-time buyers might be saying, oh, this is really good. I don't have to pay stamp duty. Well, you might have to pay an extra 5%, 10% in your price anyway because, you know, prices have gone up because there's more demand. So, um, you know, it's the same as first-home buyer grants. You know, you provide that, you've got more first-home buyers out there, you've got more competition, you're going to pay higher prices. So uh, it might not be as big a benefit as you think. Please join us for our next episode. We're doing a Q&A episode. These are your questions. And so we'll be covering what would happen to your property if the bank your mortgage is with goes bust. Alternative forms of property investment for first-time investors, capital gains tax exemptions, and my favourite tax to hate, land tax. And we'll also be discussing fixed rates versus variable in the current climate and whether to ever forego an offset account. Please join us. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook. We're on LinkedIn. We're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.